G'day, I'm Scott Sanders. Welcome to the Reach Australia podcast. This is a bit of a special edition. We're hoping uh, to release a number of audiobooks, uh, our ebook resources spoken to you so that you can share them with your team so that you can listen to them on a ride or a run uh, or however you like to enjoy and listen to your podcasts. This podcast is our Serving Others ebook. It was introduced at our 2022 National Conference and it's a great resource to be thinking into how can we get our churches and church members serving? Uh, under God, we want to see a church that is full of people who are gladly, sacrificially, joyfully, wholeheartedly giving themselves to ministry, giving themselves to seeing uh, the lost one uh, and people grown and strengthened in their faith. And so this ebook is all about that. So enjoy uh, listening to the Serving Others ebook. Josie Cito is going to be helping us think into serving others. We long to reach Australia for Christ. Given that concern, the often repeated suggestion that 20% of people in our churches are doing 80% of the ministry work is distressing. Imagine what God might do if we could, under God, see the other 80% engage fully in the work. However, as noble as this concern is, it needs to be undergirded by a deeper desire. The desire to see each and every member of church mature into the full measure of the image of Christ. We are not running organisations that are simply concerned with maximising ministry output for the sake of achieving organisational goals. We want God to be honoured in the lives of each of his people as they grow to be fully formed disciples of Christ. We most keenly desire that God might be glorified in each human saved by Christ to live in the glorious freedom of the sons of God, no longer ruled by self-centred passions, but as servants of Christ given over to humble, glad and sacrificial service of others. But this ought necessarily to flow over into reaching Australia for Christ. If churches were full of people joyfully and wholeheartedly giving themselves to the ministry, Imagine what God might do through us. Some have described the church as a sleeping giant. There is far more that we could do together than we are presently doing. Our hope is that with this paper, it might serve towards the great end of maturing every disciple and so strengthening the health of every church so that it might grow in every dimension, spiritually and numerically. The sleeping giant might awake. Chapter 1. The Nature of Christian Service Service is a very broad idea. At a very simple level, it is to put yourself at another's disposal and count their interests as greater than your own. It is to do something to help someone, providing some benefit or service to them. The world is full of service. The New Testament uses service language in this broad sense, though not as often as we might imagine. It more often uses the language of love or good works for this general sort of service, the act of sacrificially giving ourselves for the good of others. When the New Testament talks of service or ministry, it often has a more particular kind of service in mind. Consider the very famous words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. 
Paul certainly appeals to Christians to embrace a very broad sense of service based on the model of Christ. He embraced servanthood, even though he was in very nature God, or perhaps better and astonishingly because he was in very nature God. We pursue servant-hearted lifestyle because God embraced that life himself. We pursue it because it is the kind of life God exalts. It is because Jesus humbled himself that God exalted him. Servant life is godlike and glorious. However, even here is a hint that the biblical language of serve isn't focused as broadly as we often assume. The particular act of service for which Christ is exalted is the act of humbling himself to death on a cross. His great act of service was a saving act. It was his act of dying to save that expresses most fully his act of service. In this, Jesus obeyed his father. He served his father. We do not just serve others. We do it as servants of God and as an act of worship to him. We are someone's servant. This service has a centre, the desire to serve others in seeking their salvation. This is pressed forward when the most common word for serve or ministry is considered, diaconia. There has been a significant shift in the understanding of this word in recent years, to the extent that even BDAG, the standard Greek-English lexicon, has changed its entry in the most recent editions. It is now widely accepted that the primary meaning of diakoneo is to be commissioned to act as an intermediary, to bring something to someone as a go-between. A diakonos is most commonly someone whom a master or superior has commissioned to give or deliver something to someone else, to serve it to them. English does not handle this very well. We might say to serve up something. Perhaps the closest we get is when we speak of serving a summons. But this sense of being commissioned by a superior to act as a go-between, to bring something to someone, is central to the vocab and conceptual framing of ministry and service in the New Testament. Sometimes the thing that you are commissioned to bring might be food and drink, from the kitchen to the table. Most often in the New Testament, it is the word of Christ. Ministers of the gospel are go-betweens of the gospel word. We take the thing we have been given by our master and faithfully serve it up to others. This is what our ministry is about. This can create something of a complexity. What do we mean by our use of the serve language? It is appropriate to use it in its broader sense, as a near synonym for love others. We encourage people to serve in whatever ways will help others as they live as servants of God. But the New Testament usage alerts us to a truth that ought to pervade all our thinking about serve. It has a centre and a heart that is unique to Christians and their service. We have as our deepest concern as God's servants or ministers, the bringing of a gospel word to people that they might be edified and saved. This will mean that we do not only pay attention to word gifts. We will certainly be particularly concerned that each and every member of the body of Christ learns to speak God's word to one another and to the world around us. But the New Testament describes a breadth of gifts. The body is made up of many parts. These parts are often 
though not exclusively, orientated towards serving the purpose of delivering the word to people. So the gift of administration will aid in establishing a ministry structure that will multiply the word. The music gifts will be employed to enable the word in song. There will be some who work out how, in a larger church, the PA might work to facilitate the delivery of the word. Welcomers will care about helping people connect in so that they can hear clearly the proclaimed word of God, and so on. The word remains central, even in our thinking about ministry. But the concern to grow the serve area will not only be focused on the activity of speaking gospel words. There are many other loving acts of service that go together to create a healthy church that nurtures the devotion of each member to Christ and the love of one for another. The lists of gifts throughout the New Testament cannot be reduced to merely serving the delivery of the word. For instance, the gift of helps. In addition, there was a concern for the distribution of food in Acts 6, the care of widows, the provision of clothing in James 2, and so on. The Pentagon we often refer to seeks to give expression to this dynamic. There are at least five big areas of church life that each need to be working well for the fullness of the life of Christ to be expressed and nurtured. Each of these only fires when individuals give themselves to serving these areas or outcomes. Deep in the word, loving God, on mission, serving others in community. Chapter two, some very practical implications. We must not equate serving with only a formal service role in church. This would be akin to equating maturity with joining a group. The serving others outcome is not simply about getting people to do jobs in church. We might grieve that too few people serve in church life, and so our churches are less effective in reaching Australia than they might otherwise be. But our first concern must be for people, that they are falling short of the glory and freedom that Christ has called us to. We must not use people as a means to an end. Each person, growing to be fully formed disciples of Christ, is the focus of our concern, as we then call each of them to be concerned for others. Of course, this will then lead us to a concern to be more effective as a church. Because concern for people means we will want our churches to reach more people. But there will be an important order to this expression of concern. We should not reduce Christian service to nothing more than an obligation. To serve is far more noble than obligation. To be active in the service of others is one of the ways we worship and serve our God. It is a part of our imitation of Christ. It is a glorious privilege entrusted to us, and it is the way in which we can bring the blessing of God to others. Importantly, wonderfully, we will recognise the power of the gospel itself to drive our pursuit of serving others. The very nature of the gospel is a message of loving service by one who is saving us to be loving servants. It is the gospel that compels and drives us to pursue those things. We preach the gospel to facilitate the serving others outcome. And this outcome is the fruit of faithful gospel preaching. 
a community of believers increasingly captured by a vision to let go of self and look to others and their interests. We serve because it is good and right. We serve because in it we glorify our God. We have good reason to be wholehearted, generous and even sacrificial in our service of others. And our service is worth it. The work of the Lord is not in vain. Chapter 3, Leading a Church Towards Serving One Another Serving Others and the Church Ecosystem A local church can be described as an ecosystem. Each part of church life affects all the others. So it is with the goal to mobilise church members in serving others. The five sub-outcomes under the larger outcome of making mature disciples in ever-increasing number each work together to empower each part. We want people deep in the word, loving God in community and on mission. And so we want people serving others. Serving others grows out of the other priorities and facilitates the others being achieved. More on that in a moment. On the one hand, empowering church members to be serving others will have a positive effect on the rest of the church ecosystem. There will be more word speaking, more caring, welcoming, teaching, inspiring, comforting and evangelising going on as more people use their gifts. As people use their gifts in roles that support other ministries, such as through administration, there will also be more opportunities and resources and support for these things to take place efficiently and effectively. Starting to serve others can also become a way in which church members grow in their character and convictions and form new Christian friendships. Caring for others and contributing to God's work is usually also a source of spiritual joy and encouragement to the person doing the serving. Under God, the church will grow in depth and in number. All that it does will be done better and more extensively and so capture up more people and so grow. On the other hand, if this area of serving others is neglected or mismanaged, burnout, frustration and apathy will have a deleterious effect on the whole ecosystem. The church will struggle to be as effective in its mission of making mature disciples. Great opportunities for evangelism or fellowship might be wasted because there are insufficient funds or the logistics are too cumbersome. Chapter 4. What it looks like to lead the church in serving others. In smaller churches and newer churches, an important part of this will be leaders managing their own time and priorities and learning to delegate. As the church grows bigger, there will be an increasing need to build structures that enable more people to serve, lay out steps for new people to start serving, and provide support for those already serving. Over time, there will be a need to also develop leaders, to oversee different activities, programs, and areas of church life, to encourage people to step into different roles as needed, and to encourage other people to pioneer new work. In smaller and newer churches, this thinking may not be the responsibility of a distinct serving others team, let alone someone who might be called a serve pastor. It may simply be one of the responsibilities of the pastor, an item on the leadership team's agenda and a bullet point in the strategic plan. But where churches are bigger and more complex, more time, energy and attention will eventually need to be devoted to doing this well. 
This may well lead to specialisation, with the appointment of someone to particularly focus on this area. Taking the time to think about this aspect of church life ensures that this important work is not neglected. The sleeping giant wakes. Chapter five, putting it into practice. Where do you begin in thinking through how to mobilize the members of your church in serving others? There are some concrete steps you can take to improve the work of your church in this area. Steps that you can return to again and again as the work progresses. One, stir the heart and set the vision for serving. Two, cultivate a lifestyle of serving in all areas of life. Three, identify serving opportunities and needs within church. Four, prioritize opportunities and needs. Five, develop an intentional recruitment strategy. Six, work with people on the first steps to start serving. Seven, build intentional structures and create a culture of responsibility. Eight, support those in ministry roles. Nine, develop leaders. And 10, track progress and make changes as needed. Each of these steps will be explained in greater depth over the coming pages. Chapter six, stir the heart and set the vision for serving. The serving others outcome is not just about having good ministry structures in place. More properly, it is about the people of God transformed from the inside out so that they have a desire to serve for the glory of God and the good of others around them. Sometimes, of course, the heart can follow the action. But the serving others outcome is most deeply concerned with people captured by Christ to live for Christ as his servants. When this is placed in a well-considered ministry structure, wonderful. We therefore need to pay attention to the heart. We want to set a fire in people for a life of service. And like a fire, we need to give it the fuel to light and burn. Preaching. Does the preaching regularly connect gospel truths with transformed lives which show themselves in the glorious freedom of living for the good of others? Does it touch on the pieces spoken of in the first pages of this paper? Does it connect gospel truths to lives of sacrificial service? There is much more to the Christian life than read your Bible, pray and help out at church. The scriptures give deep and powerful reasons to shift from self to others. And they talk in rich and varied ways about what service might look like. How could the ministry of public preaching in your church expand upon the ultimate good of God's glory, the importance of the work of the Lord, the brevity of this life, the realities of heaven and hell, the honour of being God's fellow workers, the precious treasure which is the church of God, and so on, so that people want to serve and then challenge people to actually serve. Upfront spots on Sundays. Interviewing members who serve can highlight different opportunities for service and model a serving mindset. Or perhaps simply ask those reading the Bible or praying to share a thought around their ministry service. For example, Hi, my name's June. I help run a growth group on Tuesday night and I also love being on the cleaning team. Would you believe it? I'm now going to be reading from John's Gospel. Attention should also be given to how announcements related to ministry needs are presented. 
Appeals which rely upon nothing more than guilt with regard to a pressing ministry need should be reworded to give a fuller picture of the value of the work and the motivations for serving. People tend to respond to vision, not need. However, with a healthy vision already in place, the mention of need will garner a powerful response. Discussing serving others with new church members. If your church has a membership course, newcomers lunch or member moment, then this provides a great opportunity for you to stir the heart and set the vision for serving. Talking about the theological basis for Christian service helps new members understand the culture and values of the church. Then, when a new church member is approached to talk about how they might serve later on, they will not be surprised. This was introduced to them as a normal part of church life. Special Sunday gatherings focused on serving. Some churches choose to theme a particular Sunday gathering around the idea of service. This Sunday features songs, a sermon, and perhaps other upfront elements that reflect on this theme. A prospectus of various formal and informal ministry opportunities could be prepared and handed out, but only those ministries which can tolerate congregation members volunteering. Do not invite volunteers for growth group leading. Various ministry teams and close parachurch partners could even host an expo after the church service. For such an event to have the best outcome, special attention should be given to very clear and easy next steps that people can take if they would like to start serving in a new way. Recognition of contributions to church events, programs and activities. There are various occasions where we can publicly recognise the range of ways people make a difference for the cause of Christ. It may be in a bulk email, social media post during church announcements, at the annual congregational meeting or some other gathering of church members or leaders. Do not slip into a list of thank yous. Focus instead on honouring fellow workers in the Lord. When sharing the success of a series of evangelistic events or a church camp, for example, some of the different ways that members helped make these events a success could be specifically mentioned and the ways these works contributed to eternal things. This is not only a kindness to those who work hard behind the scenes, but also another way to inspire others with all the different avenues by which they can contribute to the mission of the church. Targeted training sessions. Although much training can take place on the job, concentrated times of training can be very valuable. If planned well, these times can refresh vision and enthusiasm, improve ministry skills, and draw in new team members. Training could focus on different desired ministry outcomes, being on mission, living in community, etc. Particular demographics and life stages, children's ministry, marriage support, or even important informal activities, how to give your testimony, how to run family devotions. Make the most of regular team meetings. In making the shift to a team's culture, you will need to use regular team meetings to engender energy and commitment to the outcomes the team is pursuing. Do this within the larger frame of gospel work. Ensure people on teams keep a clear vision for the work and encourage one another in all they do. Do not underestimate the power of the simple camaraderie of being together, eating together and praying together. It can provide remarkable fresh energy to the ongoing work of ministry.
Chapter 7, Cultivate a Lifestyle of Serving in All Areas of Life. While this may be assumed within the first point, it is so important that it needs to be separated out. In setting vision and fueling the heart, speak to the whole of life. We want to form the mind of Christ in every believer. We want disciples who live as servant-hearted disciples in any and every context. Formal ministry responsibilities within the church gathering or Friday youth group or midweek small group are only one part of a life lived serving Christ. Speak intentionally to the totality of life. However, be careful of unnecessarily elevating informal ministry over formal. Our churches need reminding of the many ways informal ministry is part of their service but they also need to be informed of the power of their participation in formal ministry roles. Formal ministry participation, because it inevitably includes an accountability to time, place and structure, becomes a powerful way to foster and fuel informal ministry service in many and varied ways. Think about physical fitness. I might think I can exercise via informal and unstructured ways But for most people, it is when they actually join a gym that they also give themselves to many informal and unstructured fitness activities and end up fitter. It is very often the case that people devoted to formal ministries within church are more active in informal and unstructured settings inside and outside the church. This is counterintuitive and certainly against much popular advice, but it is an observable reality. Note this and then allow for exceptions. Chapter eight, identify serving opportunities. It is very powerful to do a thorough stock take of all the formal and informal ministry needs and opportunities in your church. Do this proactively as a regular activity in your ministry planning. Do it from the perspective of the ministries we would love to have established to facilitate the full health and maturity of the ecosystem of church. This forces a leader to lead proactively and not merely respond to needs or simply give expression to his own personality and gifts. It also helps leaders across all ministries in church to recognise all the things that need doing week by week. Importantly, this then helps the church leader to know how to share the breadth of work and its needs more broadly. A list of opportunities can be shared with people looking for ways that they might join in and serve. To do this requires a clear sense of the end towards which we are aiming and the ministry structures necessary to enable that end. What is the end? Disciples made, more and more of them. And consequently, what are the ministry structures or the serving others structures required to enable that end? Start with the big five framework pieces pictured earlier, or something like that, to create under God a fully matured disciple and a fully matured church, we want all five areas functioning, deepening and growing across all ages and stages. This kind of proactive analysis moves a leader away from simply reproducing whatever ministry they've inherited or one that sits most comfortably with their own gift set. As church leaders, it is easy to fall into only noticing the ministry opportunities that particularly reflect our own gifts or passions. If we are red-hot evangelists, 
we will only notice the ministry opportunities around evangelism and mission. If we're passionate about theology, we will only notice those opportunities around theological formation. Proactively think outside of previous patterns and outside of favourite ministry styles. Consider the totality of the ecosystem. This will allow you to identify the larger ministry structures needed to facilitate a healthy church ecosystem. It can then help to begin to construct an organisational chart. This will involve two steps. Firstly, identifying current ministry structures. Secondly, dreaming the dream of a fully functioning ecosystem, achieving the larger outcome, making mature disciples in ever increasing number. Reach Australia calls this process, now, where, how. Seek to understand the reality of current ministry, the now, then clarify the future picture of church, the where, before working with your team to identify the ministry activities in the next 12 months and medium term, the how. When you've identified your current ministry structure, notice how many roles the one person is filling. Sometimes we fail to delegate and involve others because we do not notice the many different areas that one person fills. Sometimes a pastor or ministry leader is actually filling three, four, five or more different roles without realising it. Recognising this better empowers the motivation to delegate. Consider the depth of organisational structure required to properly achieve the desired outcomes. Often we run very flat organisations. This can work well for people in time-rich contexts such as university ministries, but we will struggle to get real traction in suburban and lower socioeconomic areas where greater levels of organisation and leadership are needed. Do not forget occasional projects and events. In addition to the ongoing activities, events and programs, there are occasional events such as evangelistic events, summer programs, conferences and short-term mission trips. These require much energy on top of our regular ministry activities. Remember that informal serving, household ministry and formal roles outside of the church will not appear on an organisational chart. Church members care for one another, edify one another, welcome newcomers and reach out to unbelievers in all sorts of ways including within the everyday patterns of their household and friendships. They might be heavily involved in serving in parachurch and secular not-for-profit work. Keep the full church ecosystem in view. If we want to grow the work, we need to move to a fuller ministry structure. This is the larger end towards which we work. How will you move your current ministry shape and structure towards this larger vision? Consider the changes necessary to move from where you are now to where you want to be. And be aware that some things may need to stay on hold until the right person or the right time. Being conscious of this will help you look for that person or time and keep the dream alive. Chapter 9. Prioritise ministry needs. Even if they do not realise it, Every church has a system of prioritising its ministry needs. This is seen in the way church staff and key leaders apportion their time and energy, how the budget is structured, what space is given to various announcements, the enthusiasm and attention key leaders show towards different ministries, 
and the way new people are recruited to ministry roles. Shift towards intentional, thoughtful and proactive prioritisation of ministry needs. This is similar to the previous point with respect to identifying opportunities. To properly prioritise ministry needs and do it proactively, we need to have a clear sense of what part each piece in the ecosystem plays. What part of church life fuels the work? What part multiplies it? What area needs work urgently if the church is ever going to move beyond its current circumstance? Again, this requires deep thought if we are to break out of patterns that may not have been helpful in our past church or ministry experiences. We often pick up a sense of priority from previous ministry experience. We may have found small group life to be utterly transformative in our own lives and so we'll naturally prioritise that area without proper regard to the larger picture. Or it might have been one-to-one work that made the big difference to us. As a result, we can only see this as the big thing. Or we might be married to someone who is passionate about kids' work and so feel the pull towards this as the key priority. Or we might have kids going through high school and so we see these needs as greater than all others. Good leadership steps back from these impulses and considers the work through the lens of a larger picture, thoughtfully constructed with the end in mind. It then keeps the long-term health of the church in mind and so determines thoughtfully what ministry steps are necessary to build towards that church. It means saying no to the good for the sake of the long-term best. Godly and strategic decision-making by key leaders will lead to clarity about what can be left for the time being, what can be delegated to others, and what should be focused on. Some ministry work will be delegated to free up the energy of the key leaders to focus on things of strategic importance. Other work will be delegated to grow the number of people sharing in strategic work. Chapter 10, develop an intentional recruitment strategy, a good one. Recruitment to ministry so often happens through the desperate needs of a solo pastor to just get some necessary jobs done. Jobs he just cannot get to himself or does not enjoy doing. The pastor might find himself thinking, I know I cannot teach kids and I have to preach anyway. So if I do not find a Sunday school leader, we are sunk. So I'm motivated. The financials, I've got no clue. We need a person to look after the accounts because if we do not, we are bust. Many ministries are obvious to the church leader and the congregation. Everyone knows the church will need someone to lead the music. Recruiting to that is as simple as finding someone who has some ability and asking them to step into the role. The person we are asking usually knows what the role is. It's not much of a test of recruitment. We all see the need. But as the church grows beyond those most obvious tasks, it plateaus. We have found the few people who can lead the few groups that we have. We've got the Sunday school teachers, sort of. Music is covered. We then stagger on. And if we continue to recruit, our default approach is to target those who are the easiest to recruit. The elder or deaconess who has the most energy. The eager university student who has heaps of time, don't they? Or the earnest church member who is eager to please and struggles to say no. Recruitment is almost always dependent on the senior minister knowing the person being recruited. Churches often have what might be described as a centrally controlled system. 
Recruitment only happens through the senior minister or the small leadership or eldership team. There are some strengths to this system. It is tightly controlled. It means there is little risk of the organisation running away from the leadership. This can very much appeal to a church that has a strong sense of accountability for all the work. But it is slow and it limits recruitment to the circle of relationships around the senior leader and or the elders. This necessarily slows potential growth. Congregational initiative is often discouraged and then lost altogether. People can end up just doing jobs on a roster constructed by the minister or eldership. In contrast, it's possible to imagine a free market approach. Any leader, or perhaps even member, is free to ask someone to serve in a particular ministry. The recruitment strategy is simple. Directly ask someone to take on a role or wait for people to volunteer. When someone volunteers, immediately welcome them into the role of their choosing. This strategy has the advantage of being quick and simple. It rewards initiative. Energetic leaders can grow their area of ministry and church life. It facilitates high levels of ownership and responsibility. But at what cost? Quality control suffers. The eldership or senior leader has less and less confidence that the ministries are led by qualified people. Some ministry areas suffer because their leaders are not gifted recruiters. The less visible areas suffer the most, for example, kids. It is hard for a kids leader to recruit when they're buried in kids work all day Sunday. The more glamorous work flourishes and a church can easily be ruled by the most charismatic rather than by the most godly and strategic. What is the way forward? An intentional and well-reviewed hybrid system works best. While most churches probably already function with some level of hybrid, most reformed evangelical churches function very far down towards the centrally controlled model. This is hurting our work and our growth. Along with this hybrid model is a push-pull model of recruitment. On the push side, appropriate leadership proactively seeks out people to be recruited. They keep their ear to the ground to find people who might fill key roles. Leaders push people towards particular ministries. But there is also a pull side. This is the side where church members are given a way to step forward and express their own desire to serve and be helped to find a way into a ministry that is appropriate for them. On the push side, leaders recruit to need, while on the pull side, church members volunteer for need and areas that utilise their gifts. The challenge is to create what Reach Australia calls a hybrid push-pull recruitment strategy. This requires considerable leadership energy and investment. As a church grows, it almost always requires specialisation. Chapter 11, work with people on the first steps to start serving. There are various ways that people start thinking about serving in church life. They may have prior experience from other churches and ministries. They may have a friend already active in church, or they may respond to a new member's event, public announcement, ministry spot, or training seminar. Sometimes people do not think seriously about serving until someone raises the topic with them personally. It's worth having a plan for how ministry leaders will regularly initiate conversations like this with church members. A similar conversation can result from members expressing interest in serving. The process of supporting those already serving 
will involve occasional conversations like this, usually at least annually, which might involve conversations about doing more, doing less, doing something different, or doing the same thing but better. As the church grows larger and more complex, it will become important for more and more ministry leaders to be willing and able to share in having these kinds of ministry chats. This serving conversation could take various forms. Phone, Zoom, email, SMS, before or after a regular church gathering or a specially organised catch-up. As with all interactions, face-to-face conversations have enormous benefits. The conversations actually become deep discipleship moments. They're not just about filling a position, but ideally about helping a person grow and step up. Sometimes, however, face-to-face may not be necessary or possible. Some leaders will need to beware of their tendency to opt for less personal forms of conversation, while others might need to be flexible based on the preferences of the other person or their own time limitations. Chapter 12, having the conversation about starting to serve. The aim of this kind of conversation is to understand the church members' gifts, passions and circumstances, cast a vision for the larger mission of the church and its heart for ministry, and to find ways that they might fruitfully serve. In many cases, there will already be a particular ministry opportunity that the church member and or church leader have in mind, while at other times, the options are much more open. In many cases, the church member is eager to get involved. In other cases, they may have questions and need to think about things further. A good ministry chat should have three key characteristics. One, tailored to the person. Helping people taking steps in serving is a part of pastoring them. As with all pastoral conversations, we should have sincere concern for the individual, seek to understand them, their relationships and their circumstances, including health, finances, family and work obligations. This loving concern will enable us to best help them take the appropriate next steps in serving. It will also make us attuned to those church members who for cultural or personal reasons will be less inclined to say a direct and explicit no to someone in authority. If this conversation takes place over phone or email, extra care will have to be taken to ask questions and leave space for more information rather than jumping to a direct ask. Two, directed towards the vision and motivated by God's grace. Bear in mind that our appeal for involvement is fundamentally directed towards the vision of God's purposes in the world and is properly motivated by God's grace and the love that flows from this. If particular serving opportunities are being discussed, consider how these contribute to God's purposes and the local church's work. Because these conversations are tailored to the person, these themes will be discussed to greater or lesser degrees of detail, but they must sit behind everything else. Three, practical. This is where the conversation explores what service would be most appropriate for this individual church member. Ideally, opportunities will be discovered at the intersection of their circumstances, passions, skills, and the needs of the church or the wider gospel work and opportunities to do good. But this is not always perfectly the case. As the conversation becomes more practical, it may be the time to talk more about the specific requirements of different roles, including duration of service, expecting meetings, formal screening, and so on. This initial ministry chat 
may not end with a final answer, but some clear next steps to be pursued. Chapter 13, Outcomes of a Serving Conversation. Not all conversations end the way the ministry leader might expect or hope. There is a range of potential outcomes that we need to be prepared for. The person may give an enthusiastic yes and become eager to know what the next step is. They may show more interest in serving in a different area than expected or hoped for. Alternatively, it may become clear that it would be best to support them in pioneering a whole new ministry. The serving conversation may develop into a personal conversation about spiritual and personal challenges in someone's life. They may give voice to criticisms or complaints about the church. As we said earlier, these conversations are part of pastoral leadership, and so while the purpose of the conversation has shifted, it is still an opportunity for discipleship. It may become clear that the person is serving well already. Rather than recruiting them to new work, the outcome may be to better support them in the informal work they are already doing or the ministries they are engaged with beyond the local church. It may become apparent that they are overwhelmed with ministry responsibilities. They need some guidance in consolidating their commitments to serve in a more effective, joyful and sustainable manner. They may need some time to think, alone or with their partner or household. Or they may not be at a point where they can take on anything new, but they would like to revisit this conversation at a later time. Honouring these requests is very important in showing respect, building trust and fostering a culture of willing service. Chapter 14, Obstacles to Good Recruitment. Some of us feel uncomfortable inviting others to take on a new role in church. We can feel like asking people to serve is laying a burden on them. When we feel this way, we can couch our invitations in apologies and multiple out clauses. Sometimes we entirely avoid having direct conversations about how people might serve. We think of all the reasons why someone might say no, and so we don't even give them the option to make the decision for themselves. Perhaps, we naively hope, people will just volunteer when they are ready. We need to remember all the truths discussed at the beginning of this paper. It is a duty and an honour to serve others. We are giving a wonderful opportunity to others by inviting them to serve. Ultimately, we are encouraging people to serve Jesus as an act of discipleship. Another obstacle to good recruitment is using people to fill gaps. There is so much to do in church, and we are doing the Lord's work after all, so surely it is always right to get more people doing more jobs for the cause of Christ, isn't it? It is very easy for us to spiritually justify the ways in which we have concluded we need to meet our organisational needs. This thinking conflates our particular strategies with God's will. When we make this mistake, we may find ourselves becoming more mercenary in our treatment of God's people, pushing them too much to say yes, to do more. If we don't have enough people to do the work, it may be that we need to patiently wait on God to answer our prayers. It may be that we need to restructure, simplify and become more efficient. No church program need justify thoughtlessly using people instead of considerately loving them. Another obstacle is leading with too many details. Sometimes we give people too much information up front, 
detailed job descriptions and PDF attachments. Keen church members can be overwhelmed before they've had a chance to think. Keep it simple to begin with. People will be much more prepared to listen to the details once they've expressed openness to consider the role. Likewise, we can sometimes begin answering objections people haven't even raised. It is far better to make a general ask and then see what questions people might raise once they start thinking seriously about it. We can also fall into softening the serving conversation by appealing to human-centred motivations. The personal growth and fulfilment that comes, a sense of obligation to others, a work's righteousness sense of indebtedness to God, the perks and pleasures of being part of a particular team, spiritual flattery about someone's gifts or maturity, and appeals to a worldly pride in the success of the local church. While some of these might be additional benefits to serving or could be reframed in a healthy way, they are absolutely no substitute for the deep, grace-filled and God-centered motivations for serving others. Chapter 15, build intentional structures and create a culture of responsibility. When we work well together, we achieve more than any one of us could on our own. The same is often true in gospel ministry. Not only are we able to do more when we work together, we also shield one another from some of the drudgery and impact of working hard all by ourselves. It's the responsibility of church leaders to build ministry structures that help God's people work effectively together to achieve the outcomes we pursue as God's people. Well-designed ministry structures will both enhance the impact of the church's work and better care for the people involved. Thoughtful ministry structures in a church culture that has a clear vision and spiritual heart can also increase the degree of ownership people have over their contribution to the work of the church and empower them to give thought and effort to their work. This responsibility and empowerment also brings glory to God by recognising the work of His Spirit in individual Christians and their partnership with one another in building His church. We not only achieve better outcomes, but do so in a way that is more glorious. The pastor is responsible for structuring the church in a way that is most meaningful, efficient and effective. In some cases, efficiency is paramount and so paying a secular contractor or developing a colour by numbers job description for a simple roster is best. In other cases, meaningfulness, effectiveness, ownership and empowerment are also important. These things can be enhanced by intentional ministry structures. Setting up a peer network of individuals chipping away at a similar ministry can be a meaningful way to support them. Often, building ministry teams with a clear sense of purpose, ownership and empowerment is especially effective. Of course, within the work of these teams, some aspects might still be organised by colour by numbers, job descriptions, rosters and peer networks. While responsibility and empowerment can be achieved throughout the whole church culture, it can be seen very clearly in outcome-focused ministry teams. Recognising the benefits of outcome-focused teams and learning how to establish and support them can be a significant paradigm shift in how church leaders approach the structuring of their church ministries. This simplified flowchart is designed to highlight that paradigm shift without suggesting that every ministry role is best facilitated through an outcome-focused team. Chaos leads to rosters, 
leads to task-focused teams, leads to outcome-focused teams. Furthermore, while those serving on rosters or task-focused teams can also enjoy camaraderie and spiritual fellowship with one another, these things are even more likely to be experienced in outcome-focused teams. In this way, teams become part of the larger discipleship ecosystem. Personal growth does not just happen in Bible studies or one-to-one -one ministry. It happens in every area of church life as the body works together. Chapter 16, some principles for intentionality and responsibility. As you seek to build intentional ministry structures and foster a culture of responsibility, consider the following principles. One, seek clarity on desired outcomes. With everything in church life, think through what outcomes you are aiming for. By definition, being conscious of outcomes is especially important for outcome-focused teams. Two, help different teams, activities and programs interact with one another well. When the different parts of church life are in intentional alignment, rather than doubling up or treading on toes, there can be a really exciting synergy that develops. Three, notice the way people move from one ministry to another. This is an important thing to be aware of for age-specific demographic ministries. The move from Sunday school to youth group, for example, and for new member-specific ministries, from evangelistic course to follow-up course to new members course to Bible study group, for example. Four, clarify levels of responsibility. If people are to have a sense of responsibility, they need to know how much of a say they have over their work and how much initiative is expected of them. Chapter 17, support those serving in ministry. A church that is full of members actively speaking and acting for the glory of God, the love of others, the building of the church and the saving of the world require ongoing support. In addition to establishing structures to get people serving, it is important to also establish structures for supporting those who are already serving. Many of the previous steps above lay excellent groundwork for supporting those serving in ministry. While the following guidelines are especially targeted at those serving in formal roles at church, some of these things should also be applied to those formally serving beyond the local church. 1. Clarity on roles and expectations. Job descriptions, organisational charts and purpose statements give those who are serving clarity and confidence about what they are doing and what is required of them. These things also protect them from jobs growing bigger and bigger over time. 2. Communication. The more complex things become in church, the more deliberate and thorough the communication needs to be. It is very stressful for those in church ministry, especially those with significant responsibilities, if they don't feel they are being kept in the loop. Insufficient communication and consultation can also lead to frustration and apathy over time. Three, team meetings. Team meetings are great contexts for communication and planning, but they also provide a context for strengthening relationships and spiritual encouragement. Even those serving on basic rosters might appreciate a brief quarterly or biannual meeting with others serving in teams and rosters in a similar area of church life. 
to discuss matters of mutual interest and encourage one another. Four, lines of oversight. Who leads this team? Formal oversight ensures there is accountability and communication. Formal oversight also makes it clear who is responsible for showing concern for those serving in different areas and taking appropriate care of them when needed. Overseers are responsible for giving feedback and training too. Five, feedback, coaching and training. One of the best ways to sustain people in their ministry work and enhance their work is to provide regular feedback to them. When an overseer shares specific observations of a job well done or an area that needs improvement, they communicate that this job matters, that this person's service is noticed and valued. Beyond feedback, proactive coaching and training helps everyone serving to be able to fan their gifts into flames. Six, annual review. Especially important for more substantial ministry commitments, the annual review is a bit like the initial conversation about serving. This is an intentional time where a church member is helped to reflect on their service over the last year, set goals for the year to come and request additional training, coaching or resources to do their work. In some cases, people might use this point to step down from formal serving for a season, to request to serve in a different way in the work of the church or to step up into a greater level of responsibility. Chapter 18, Develop Leaders, the Leadership Pipeline. The Leadership Pipeline provides a helpful framework for developing leaders in church. Clarity around terminology within the Leadership Pipeline can benefit a church by unifying language between teams. Additionally, when layers of leadership are clearly established, Leadership training across different teams becomes increasingly simple. Notice that in the Leadership Pipeline diagram, leadership development is not straight but bent because moving between layers in the Leadership Pipeline requires major shifts. The content of the circles represents the different layers of leadership. Team member, team leader, area leader, ministry department leader, senior leader. The lines that join the circles correlate to the four leadership passages. One, from leading yourself to leading others. Two, from leading others to leading leaders. Three, from leading leaders to leading a department. And four, from leading a department to leading a church. Specifically, these leadership passages require a shift in three key areas, time application, skills, and values. For example, a team member needs to apply time to their own personal preparation increase their own skills to maximise their personal contribution to the team, and value the completion of tasks and goals. A team leader, however, works through their team members. The team leader needs to begin applying time to organising and inspiring their team members. The team leader needs new skills, like running a meeting and sharing the vision. The team leader now values healthy team dynamics and culture. An area leader, however, works through their team leaders. The area leader needs to apply time to helping their team leaders. New skills like annual planning, problem solving and analysis of measurements become increasingly significant. They need to value the big picture, coaching and highly functioning teams. A ministry department leader, including most kids, youth and portfolio ministry workers, works through their area leaders. 
The ministry department leader needs to apply time to contextualising the church's vision to their area. New skills include budget setting. They need to value the relationship between their ministry department and other departments within church and discipleship pathways. A senior leader works through their ministry department leaders. The senior leader needs to apply time to staff management. New skills include running staff meetings, setting vision and financial management. They need to value the health of the whole church. These shifts can be quite painful. Often, the person who is undergoing the leadership passage from team member to team leader can be reluctant to change their approach, preferring instead to continue doing what made them a valuable contributor as a team member. There is a certain loss associated with no longer giving the kids talk, but teaching others to give great kids talks. There is a hurt that comes with no longer making great coffee, but teaching the team how to do it. Every leadership passage includes a movement away from what is often referred to as the front line of ministry. Chapter 19, track progress and make changes. So how can you know if your church is making progress? Not everything that matters can be measured, for example, the internal state of someone's heart, but some things can be. Measures are almost always proxies, which give indications, but not the full picture. And yet measuring is also a matter of faithful and loving shepherding. As a parent measures the growth of their child, and a shepherd counts the number of their sheep, so too a good church leadership team will pay attention to measurements. When we consider the serving others outcome, one key measurement is the proportion of church in a formal serving role. This is not the only important measure, but it is a key measure, and one that is possible to measure in most churches. On the one hand, every born-again member of a church ought to participate informally in love and service of one another. No one needs a job to speak the words to others, to encourage, love and serve. On the other hand, if we are to see the church flourish and grow, we need to increase the number of people who not only serve informally, but make a priority of formally participating in the life of the church. Counting involvement at ministries beyond our churches, for example, volunteering at a homeless shelter, has value but if we want a healthy, vibrant church that is raising up many more who might serve at the homeless shelter, we also need to consider how to grow the formal ministry base of a church. So we conclude that a headline measurement in the serving others area is the proportion of people who are currently serving in a formal role or ministry team. Are there any benchmarks for this figure? It is hard to say as a rule across all churches and circumstances. Larger Australian churches often aim for around 70% of church members in formal ministries. Any higher, and there may be a problem with the size of a church's fringe, or an over-prioritisation on formal obligations. A growing church will ordinarily have a crowd of people attending to consider the things of Christ. They will be moving into the life of the church and ought not be expected to join formal ministry teams yet. Sensitive church leaders also recognise the reality that there will be some who want to serve but cannot. For example, parents of newborns or shift workers. While every church is different and has its own unique circumstances, we suggest this rough rule of thumb. If less than 55% of your church serves in a formal role or ministry team, there is work to be done. 
Here are a few other proactive measurements to consider. What is our ratio of team members to team leaders? How many people does each area have and how many do they need? How many team members, team leaders, area leaders and ministry department leaders do we have? How many people are going out from us into full-time ministry? Those measurements are all quantitative. A variety of qualitative measurements are also possible in which the church is surveyed about their experiences of serving. Conclusion. Australia is in dire spiritual need. To reach the 25 million people in this country, we need to mobilise the sleeping giant. We hope this paper helps you to begin to dream of ways forward for your church. The amount of work to be done may seem overwhelming, but it is achievable under God if we do it together. Our labour in the Lord is not in vain. Well, if you want to read and digest and think about this a little bit more, there's a link in the show notes to a website where you can download this resource and have a, uh, a copy for yourself. I'd encourage you to do that, share it with your team, uh, think out loud and, and really digest some of those key points that we've been able to listen to just over the last little while. Also, can I encourage you to think about supporting uh, Reach Australia? We want to continue to create resources like this that can help the church change and grow. And so if you'd like to support the Reach Australia network, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes as well so you can support the work of producing resources just like this. I'm Scott Sanders. Chat soon.